0: While the rest of us are turning to Isaiah chapter 34, um, our hope, just so you know, church, um, the hope is that we will wrap up the, um, this first major section in Isaiah which is uh, chapters 1 through 39 is the first major section. So we're hoping to get to chapter 39, the beginning of Advent, which is in a couple of weeks, starting November 28th. We'll take a break from Isaiah again. Big books, we want to take breaks in between. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into an Advent series uh, uh, t- time together on Sunday morning, preaching through the themes of Advent, uh, the first uh, uh, celebrating the first coming of Jesus. So we'll start that November 28th. Also, I just want to mention that the pastor, Ed Marcel, who was the former pastor of Terra Nova Church, actually planted King's Chapel in 1997, is actually coming to preach here on November 7th. So mark your calendar. Ed will be here. Pastor Ed will be has been a friend of ours, a friend of mine personally, very helpful. Um, and uh, he's coming here. He is now the director of church planting and multiplication of Harbor Network, which used to be Converge's Church Planting. So mark your calendar for that. That is happening on November 7th. Turn with me now to Isaiah, we are in chapters 34 and 35, that's where we'll be at today, chapters 34 and 35, and just as a way of a reminder, um, at this point, as you know, Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, the ten tribes of the north, also known as Ephraim, if you're reading Isaiah, you see Ephraim, Israel, it's the northern tribes, has been conquered, Uh, Samaria, their city. Uh, their capital city uh, has been decimated by the Assyrian army in 721 B.C. God, in his sovereignty, has used the Assyrian army for his purposes, and that's to chastise Israel uh, due to their covenant-breaking, stubborn rebellion against him. And but the Assyrian army attacked Israel and started headed southward, and uh, they're moving forward, and now they are at the southern kingdom known as Judah. They're at the doorstep of that city of Jerusalem. They've conquered other cities, but now they're at the capital city of Jerusalem. The king now is Hezekiah. His father Ahaz, just like his father Ahaz, not in faith, but in fear, made an alliance with foreign nations. And although Hezekiah was a good king, we mentioned it last week as well, tore down many high places in the area that were established in in the city of Jerusalem, he chose fear. He didn't choose faith. And he ran to Egypt for protection, for, for refuge, for not only protection, refuge, but for shelter rather than trust in God. Remember, Ahaz made an alliance with Assyria. Now we got Ezekiel making an alliance with Egypt. Now, the fear of man, as we know, and the fear of, of what this world can throw at us cannot coexist, cannot coincide with faith. Fear, fear produces worry. Fear produces worry, and the results of that is faithlessness. In fact, the word worry in the Greek is two words, means to be, to be torn in two directions. Either, either you worry about what the circumstances are, or you're placing that in faith in God in his hands. It's one or the other. Fear produces worry, and the result is faithlessness, and that's what we see here. So as we get into our text this morning in chapter 34, uh, we know that the actual context started back in chapter 28. 28 is where God, uh, Isaiah picks up. Uh, It's about 20 years after the Assyrian army has destroyed Israel. 721 they destroyed and we're looking at about 701 now. The northern kingdom has been destroyed, and now they're on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a little bit. I know Chris, Pastor Chris did a great job last week. Mentioned a little bit of the historical background of what's going on with Hezekiah and Jerusalem and, and the, uh, the extortion of money uh, that uh, Sennacherib, was, uh, who's the Assyrian king, was taking from Judah. And all that took place, well, beginning next Sunday... We're going to look at that. We're going to look at that historical event. So if you haven't looked at it, please do so this week as your assignment. Okay? Isaiah chapter uh, 36 through 39 and 2 Kings 18 through 20. All right, I'll say it one more time. You can write it down because nobody's moved. <laughs> Isaiah 36 through 39 and 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings uh, chapter 18. Okay? So, as we get into the text this morning, in many ways, this is like wrapping up our subsection that started in chapter 28. We saw this. This is, this is what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is, is a, a prophet, of course, filled with the Spirit, writing what God wants him to write. We saw him back in chapter 13 that Isaiah was writing against Israel, was, was, was saying, look, Israel, you, you, you need to trust God, and, and a Assyrian army is going to destroy you. And Israel didn't listen. And chapters 13 through 23 was the judging of Israel. And then we get to chapter 24. Isaiah turns and says, this is what's going to happen to the whole world. But yet God's people will be redeemed. We saw that in chapters 24 through 27. So chapter 13, God's going to judge Israel, judge the nations, and there's redemption. Well, this is the same thing that's happening today. When we get to chapter 34, it's really a wrap-up of what started in chapter 28, that Judah now was under judgment, that the, the, the Syrian army was approaching Judah and was going to teach Judah a lesson. And now Isaiah is going to say, God's going to judge the world and God's going to redeem his people. It's so cool to see how Isaiah is writing. So so this chapter, 34 and 35, is similar to chapters 24 and 27, this crescendo of eschatological conclusion that God is going to do to the whole world and bring about his salvation. It's beautiful. So that's where we're at. And once again, future judgment, we're looking at chapter 35 excuse me, future judgment, chapter 34, and this hope of Israel in chapter 35. So that's where we're going today. So open your Bibles to re, and we'll read together chapter 34. Uh, Chris, again, did a great job last week. We ended with, in chapter 33 with the, uh, looking at the righteous, the mighty judge, lawgiver, the Lord, the King, who will deliver the people, the Lord of glory will save them. And in chapter 33, now in chapter 34, we're looking at what actually will, <laughs> we're being saved from. So 34 is a little heavy, but we'll get to 35. We're going to do both of them together. So here's your outline. Destruction of the nations. That's all of chapter 34. Transformation of creation, that's chapter 35. And the redemption of God's people, that's chapter 35 as well. So we're going to look at chapter 34 as a whole. So turn there with me to chapter 34. And I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll jump in, okay? Chapter 34, verse 1 of Isaiah. Here the authoritative... Infallible inspired word of God chapter 34 verse 1 draw near O nations to hear and give attention O peoples let the earth hear and all that fills it the world and all that comes from it for the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against all their host he has devoted them to destruction has given them over for slaughter their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. And their hosts shall fall, all as leaves fall from the vine, as leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams." For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, and great slaughter in the land of Edom. The our wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. The land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recomp- recompense for the cause of Zion." And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch. Her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. Generations to generations it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stench. Uh, excuse me. stretch the line of confusion over it. And, and the plumb line of emptiness... Its nobles, there is no one, there is to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its stronghold, nestles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and a boat of ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, their night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. Verse 15, there the isle rests. Excuse me, there the owl nests and lay and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek, verse 16, and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. Not shall, none shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, his spirit has gathered them. He shall cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them for the line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. May God add a blessing to the reading of his words this morning. Thinking, wow, this is gonna be fun. You know, just a side note. Isaiah, you know, the Bible says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, right? And Isaiah is a challenge, I know. I've talked to some of you. I, it is a challenge but we're getting the whole counsel of God. It's very important that we understand the prophets of the Old Testament. It's very understand, we understand the prophets of the New Testament, the apostles. So here at King Shabbat, we do expository preaching. We, we stay primarily in the New, but we are looking at the Old Testament. It, it, think of me as your coach going, two more sit-ups, come on, you could do it. <laughs> come on, another chin-up, one more. It's like, you know what? We're stretching, we're growing as we study the book of Isaiah. That's, that's a side note, that's free of charge. okay. Verse one of chapter 34, actually verses one through four, as a summons to the nations. It's kind of reminiscent of chapter one, verse two, where God calls the whole world into account for their sin and rebellion. In chapter one, though, it was a call of a witness. Here in chapter 34, it's a call for a sentence. As Assyria is fading from the view, from view. The prophet is addressing the whole world. It's universal in significance. It's worldwide in scope. He begins with the imperative, look with me, draw near. It's an imperative, it's a command. It's God saying to the whole world, come, forsake whatever you're doing, drop what you're doing, come near to me as I, may, as I speak and show you what is about to come. It's actually a, a somber message concerning the future judgment. Now I realize as I, we're reading this passage, and I realize maybe you're here this morning, uh, our culture is getting more and more secular, right? More and more there is no God. There is no God. There is is no reality. therefore talking about God is bad enough. Talking about God who judges and holds men and women accountable is far-fetched and ludicrous to so many. Now somehow God will hold people accountable for their sin. Somehow God will hold people accountable to his word and to his standard is ludicrous to some. But let me tell you the truth. From according to God's word, God's not impressed God's not deterred from carrying out his plans just because we think we can make decisions of what's right and wrong and that we are not accountable to him. He's not deterred by that. And as we see this passage of scriptures, we see the the, the judgment of God, the wrath of God that's being poured out on the world. There's a couple of things I want to mention quickly. One is God's wrath is just as potent as God's love. We love to talk about God's love. Why wouldn't we? God is love, 1 John tells us. But God is also holy, Isaiah 6 tells us. And there's never a time that God is neither. He's always love. He's always wrathful and angry against sin. It's his character. It's his nature. It's part of his attributes. Anger and wrath and judgment are actually, I mentioned this before, linked to love. The greater you love something, the greater you love someone, the more anger you get when they're abused or ill-treated or mistreated and harmed. We are God's beloved creation. And when we rebel against him, when we kill one another, rape one another, beat one another up, abuse one another, mistreat one another, he rightfully gets angry. And he will judge those who think that, you know what, I know what's right and wrong, not him. Sort of like if you have teenagers, right? You give your teenager a curfew, be in by 11, and they come walking in at 3 a.m. I didn't like your curfew. i will decide for myself, like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> the other thing is, when God gives a message of judgment, as we just read, you may never thought about this before, it's a message of love. Well, how could that be? Well, God wants to warn us. God wants to, to show us. God wants us to turn from our rebellion because he loves you and he loves me, right? We, we, as, again, as parents, we have boundaries and we tell our children what's right and what's wrong and we expect them to follow that boundary that we have given them. God doesn't take pleasure. Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why would you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven. But a day going to come. A day is going to come. On that great and final day, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, will be poured out on the world, and it will be like the overflowing of a dam, and the mountains dissolving in mudslides of human blood. Verse three. God's angry, and God's going to pour out His wrath on the nations. His decision to completely destroy the earth—excuse uh, me, not destroy the earth, but to judge the earth. Up to chapter 34, we've seen many reasons. Rebellion, faithlessness, uh, abuse, idolatry, just to name a few. And verse two tells us that God has devoted them to destruction. In other words, what he's saying, Isaiah is saying is God has, there's a resolve in God. A decree has come. Uh, the certain outcome is going to take place in due time. Devoted them to destruction. Remember, God's wrath, important to remember, shouldn't be understood or, or interpreted as some uncontrollable emotional outburst of, uh, of inappropriate rage that we've grown up under maybe and we've seen happen in our own homes or maybe you're dealing with it yourself. But it is, it is the natural response of a holy God to sin and rebellion. And these acts of destruction, God will justly... Punish and remove the ungodly and establish a domain over the kingdom, over the world, excuse me. And God is patient. First Peter tells us all over scripture, God is patient with you. If you're here this morning, God is being patient with you. He's patient with us. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone come to the knowledge of the truth. He's given you a chance by hearing this message today. But his patience will end. His patience will end. Why? Because he's just. He's just. And and, and this this picture of of a bloody corpse in verse 3 is rather repulsive. Right? I mean, a bloody corpse. I mean, even that day, even even today, right? Something disturbing about a a, a rotting corpse. Verse 3. Verse 4. destructive power will affect the heavens and the host. All that dwell in the heavens. Notice the judgment is the opposite of verse 4. is the opposite of creation. A reversal of God's creative establishment of the heavens. At creation, Isaiah tells us, verse 40, he spread out the heavens like a tent cloth. But in the future, just the opposite. God's going to roll it up like a scroll, dimming the bright objects of light in the heavens. The stars and the sky will fall from heaven like dead leaves falling from a tree. Now this ain't global warming. It's not alien invasion, no matter what movie you might have seen. It's not some nuclear war that the movies are made of. God himself will bring destruction. And let me tell you something, no matter the scariest movie you saw, no matter the the most horrifying judgment movie you've seen, doesn't even compare to what God Almighty is going to do. Family, that should produce awe. Amazement in the hearts of his creatures. When we think of of the reality of the sovereign power, authority of God, establishing, judging, and reigning and ruling over the earth, it should humble us, quite frankly. And quite honestly, not only should it humble us, but let me tell you, it should awaken our hearts to avoid the destruction that God is going to pour out on the earth. I'm not saying it's the only thing. But it should awaken us. It should humble us. In verse 5, the sword of God will descend from heaven. (laughs) How can you hide from the sword of God? What kind of covering do you think you will be able to hide or anyone? How are we going to deflect the sword of God from heaven? Verse 6, we see this final sacrifice where the sword is used for the killing of animals and now God will be using it. And this boldness of language is is a warning. Verse 6, it was Calvin who said, It is therefore necessary that the judgments of God should be set forth as a lively picture, that it may not only make a deep impression in the dull minds, but may encourage believers by holy confidence when they learn that the pride and rebellion of their enemies cannot at all hinder them from being dragged like cattle to a slaughter whenever it shall be the will of God, end quote. Remember what we learned we studied the book of Hebrews? We learned about the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament. It was to teach Israel, it was to teach the people of God as as they went into the temple and their sacrifices were being done. It was to teach them that God's holy, you're not. Right? That you just can't approach God any old way. There needs to be a substitute. The blood of the atoning sacrifice was given to mankind by God as a means of approaching Him. Leviticus 19 tells us about the atonement. It tells us that life of the creature is in its blood. Therefore, its blood, the life ending, that makes atonement for one's life. The shedding of the blood, the death of that animal for the for a season gave an atonement for that person. One life is forfeited, another one is sacrificed in its place. We saw that on the first Passover. And listen, if sin is not paid for by the sacrifice of Christ, it will be paid by the guilty themselves. Someone will be sacrificed for sins. Either Christ as our substitute, your substitute, my substitute on the cross, for you, or you will pay yourself. God will balance the scales of justice, all sin will be accounted for, and all sin will be punished in the end. The question is, by whom? And that's what Isaiah, will we get to chapter 53, that's what Isaiah was pushing towards, looking at, and revealing to us. Isaiah 53 says, he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. That's that substitute language. He was crushed and pierced for our sins. We, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us turned away to his own way, and the Lord laid on him, the Lord laid on him, the iniquity of us. Atonement language. And notice, notice in our text, this word Edom popped up. Verse five and six. Five, six, and nine. Why why did Isaiah bring up this this Edom? Well, Edom typifies the world in rebellion. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that when the nation of Israel was being established, they were were on their journey toward the promised land. They had been set free from Egypt. Uh, They requested to go through this land called Edom, Numbers chapter 20. They even said, look, we'll, we'll pay for the water. Anything that we need, we'll pay, we'll pay for it. And Edom said, no, you're not going to do that. I mean, they, they, they expected a yes answer from Edom because they were related. If you know the story, uh, Jacob and Esau are the founders or the, or the, or the, or the, the forefathers of these nations. Jacob being Israel, uh, Esau being Edom. They said, no. And in fact, they held a grudge. They said, you're not going to the promised land. You're not cutting through here. You're not being delivered and, 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 and going to your land of salvation. You need to go some other way. And ever since that day, Edom and Israel have been fighting against one another. King David, King Saul, both fought against them. They even were delighted. Edom just had a, a, a big delight when Judah finally did fall to the Babylonian captivity. God announces judgment against Edom, their faithlessness, their rebellion, in, in both Jeremiah and Malachi. So Isaiah speaks of Edom being the faithless ones, the, the ones in rebellion. They represent the anti-God earthly powers of that day that ha, and our day that have set themselves up against God and against God's people. That's why Edom is mentioned. And although, look at the city Basra, Basra verse six is mentioned, uh, it's a leading city of Edom, but the, the slaying will take place in the entire land. Now, when we get to verse nine through fifteen, Isaiah is picking up, still picking up, talking about Edom as a typical nation, and now he, he's talking about the destruction of the land, the utter destruction, inhabited by desert life. And and, and again, it, it, it's 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 a picture of of blood. It's a picture of disaster. It's a picture of vengeance. Night and day, it says they won't be quenched. Smoke will go up. And again, I. God is showing us this this destruction, this this brokenness, this in some ways shocking and horrifying view of what sin looks like. That that's the point. It, it, it's the horrifying, shocking reality of what sin looks like to God, and He and He's showing us these these pictures of disaster, the blood flowing and and smoke rising. And, Sometimes I think, well, I, I know, especially in our day, sin is not shocking anymore. I mean, you all read this week about the, what happened on a train. Some person, I'll, I'll say that, be careful, I'm, I'm live here, um, is, is harming a girl, abusing her, stop after stop. People videotaping it. like We're not taking sin very seriously these days, obviously. And God is saying, look, this is what sin looks like to me. It's shocking, it's grotesque, it's horrifying. Look at the pictures. It's death, it's evil. And the rebellion of a world against God is not a matter of just a slap on the wrist. The late R.C. Sproul said, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against the perfectly pure sovereign one. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything to the one who has given us life itself, end quote. The prophet is describing what's going on with this land, it's almost a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's fire, there's brimstone, uh, everything is decimated, uninhabitable, wild birds, verse 11, the land is empty, social order is vanished, and now look at verse 12-13, kings and nobles have nothing to rule over, it's just thorns and briars occupied by wild jackals and owls. No one, nothing, people, places, a power, palaces, nothing will escape the sovereign power wrath of God. And we get to the last two verses, we see another imperative. Look what it says. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. In other words, Isaiah is saying, listen, no doubt, There's no doubt this is going to be filled. There's no doubt that it's going to happen. And although these verses speak first and foremost about wild animals and nesting and birds, it's really about the scroll. That's the real Hebrew word, the scroll. It's really about the book of the Lord that the sovereign God has given to them, has written down in detail, and every single thing and every single line and every single prophecy will, not maybe, will take place and be fulfilled. So Israel... So, 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 excuse me, Judah, so the people of God. You, you could choose to live in rebellion. You could choose to live in fear. You could choose to live in disregard of God, but you cannot choose to escape the consequences of when God comes. It'll coincide with the word of God. It'll be implemented by the power of God. Look, look, at, look at the last couple of verses. Uh, it, it, look at the direct um, the personal touch of God. Look, look what it says in the last few verses. There's going to be his, um, his mouth commanded, his spirit gathers, and his hand has portioned it, proportioned it. So you see all three. You see, you see the mouth, the spirit, and the hand done by God. The personal touch. Now, it's not something God delights in. We already talked about that. But in the last analysis, let me, let me just say this. We go to chapter 35. Let me just say this. In the na- last analysis, listen, family, chapter 34 The vision of Isaiah is a missionary vision for the people of God. It's a missionary vision for the people of God. Okay? The urgency of this truth, uh, the world is in rebellion against God, means that we must be about the missio dei of the gospel, the, the mission of the gospel. People are lost. People are utterly and eternally separated from God without Christ. Now is the time, family, now is the time, today is the day to choose to be in mission with him as he's seeking and saving the lost, demonstrating the gospel with love and good deeds and declaring it with the truth that Christ has come, repent, and believe the gospel. Now's the day. And this is a reminder of the gospel, right? Isn't, it, isn't the gospel first bad news before it's good news? The terrifying wrath of God will come. The gospel is a warning of the judgment of the come. but The gospel also is the wonderful truth, the glorious majestic great and wonderful loving provision of God in Christ Jesus the destruction of the nations look at the transformation I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 35 the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus it shall blossom abundantly what a different chapter huh it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon they shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense, recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, the death, excuse me, be open, and the ears of the death unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert The burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. 34 ends with Edom turned into a desert. Isaiah says in chapter 35 that the desert will be a garden. The gloomy wilderness that's filled with unclean animals now will be a place of rejoicing. Three imperfect verbs here, rejoicing, blossoming, and splendor as transformation of the dry and dead wilderness takes place. Who can do that? How can this be? Who's responsible? The answer is the Lord our God. It is God. He's the author of transformation. He's the author of all joy. We think we can have real joy, but we can't without him joy is always a, a, joy is always a byproduct of the presence of God in the gospel in your life when we the, the we lack faith keep God at a distance if we if we want to keep God away and at a distance at arm's length there's destruction but when we say come and we draw near he draws near to us and he saves us and we find joy in him joy is all over this text And notice this transformation will bring the majesty and glory of nature, that part of creation. We're we're, we're, we're created beings too, but he's talking about nature like Mount Carmel and the beauty of Lebanon back to its fullness. But what's most significant is not so much the beauty of what God's gonna do, transformation of what God's gonna do, both in creation and through mankind. What, What is most significant is the transformation will be In the transformation will be a full, a beautiful revelation of the glory of God himself. They shall see the glory of God. See the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. Majesty is that word that talks about the, the sovereign, supreme, omnipotent power and greatness of God. The majesty of God. Psalm 30, excuse me, Psalm 93. The Lord reigns, And he's robed in righteousness. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity, robed in majesty. The desert couldn't do it. It needed the glory of God. Glory was given to them. Glory as a gift, a matter of grace. Rich blessings pointing to the salvation. I think it's interesting. Uh, Mattier, one of the commentators said this, that Lebanon, he says, represents the work of God, not man. That's man that, the man's not doing it, God is doing it. Lebanon represents the work of God, not man. Carmel actually means garden land. In other words, full cultivation. And he says, Sharon provides a standard of beauty. All this transforms the wild, uh, former wild desert, but those who walk through it, see more than the beauty of creation, they see the glory and splendor of their creator, end quote. That's what it's all about. And God wants to share his glory with his creation. That includes you and I, but any attempt for us to get our own glory, to do our own thing, get our own praise, will end in disaster. Everything God does, he does for his glory. Family, everything God does, ultimately, finally, Is for his own glory. Psalm 43. Excuse me. Isaiah 43. 6. Bring my sons from afar. And my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. Whom I created. For my glory. We can't add. To the glory of God. We can ascribe him the glory. We can't approve. On the glory of God. Our job is to reflect his glory. To the world. If we will give. God his glory, then he will give to us the finite glory, not infinite glory, the finite glory to display it to others. Psalm tells us, declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works, his glory, his marvelous works among all the peoples. You know, God created you and I to know him, to enjoy him, to see and treasure his glory and display its supremacy to the world. Of course, you've got to quote John Piper, right? God created human beings in his own image that he might be known and enjoyed by them and in that way displayed the supreme value of his glory, that is, the beauty of his manifold perfections. And God has not just given us minds to know the glory of God, but hearts to treasure it and enjoy it, end quote. Right? He doesn't share his infinite glory. He shares his finite glory as he saves us and rescues us and sends us on mission. Isaiah is saying, listen, if, if, if you want to understand the abundance of God's glory, if you want to understand the grace and promises and see his glory, imagine a desert turning into this place of, of great rejoicing and this blossoming abundantly all over the place. That's the kind of thing that God can do. And that's the kind of thing that God wants to do in your heart. And in my heart, glorious picture of the future that we know to be the gospel, the renewing work of grace in the heart, the desert of our lives, a dreary desert, but God is able to cause that transformation to give you new life, to make you a new creation and grow and love and sing joyfully. And sing joyfully. Joy, again, pervades this chapter of 35. It's joy. Listen, salvation is not just repenting of sin. Right? Salvation is when we delight in God. We see his glory and his majesty. And we see the beauty of the gospel of Christ. And, And he wants us to see that. In fact, he displays his glory both now and when we will see him face to face. And how does God display his glory today? The greatest manifest- manifestation of his glory is where? In Christ, right? God said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see God's glory in the face of Christ. His glory is his weightiness. That's what word glory means. Infinite, infinite beauty incalculable value, immeasurable worth, His majesty. We see as as, as the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit fills us and the Holy Spirit makes Christ known, showing us Christ. Showing us Christ who is our overflowing fountain for thirsty sinners. We're going to sing about that. Christ is our treasure. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our joy. His righteousness covers all our guilt. He has the power to overcome all our sins. He alone can purify us. He alone can can wash away our filth. He alone is the fullness and satisfaction of our soul and will satisfy us forever. And the believing heart blossoms in the revelation of Christ. He gets the glory and we get the joy. Amen. Jonathan Edwards, God is glorified, not only by his glory being seen, but by his being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. One more quote, C.S. Lewis, I love this quote. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is, it's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. We see the glory of God. He reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And then we respond with praise and worship. He's delighted in and we are filled with joy. And when God reveals to us himself, we see the glory and majesty of God, verse two, which is most satisfying, valuable, and praiseworthy, demands our worship, demands we enjoy him, demands that we give him glory, and he fulfills the longing of our hearts, and that's joy in him. The desert shall rejoice with joy and singing, for they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Ah! By seeking and seeing and savoring God's glory, his infinite value and worth, you're bringing your joy to consummation. I love verse three and four. Strengthen, strengthen the weak, the drooping, that's what it means, the drooping hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Verse four, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Strengthen the hands means to put, put your hands to, to work, putting put your hands to the task. Firm knees implies a steadiness. There's, there's a p- perseverance, a, a, a continuation on the journey. That's what our hearts need. That's what your, you heart, my heart, our anxious hearts need, that nourishing encouragement to keep going, to press on. Keep going in the faith, keep growing in the faith. And that message, we have to speak to one another, as Isaiah says, seek him. Go after him, love him, be confident, be fearless in his promises. As God's people who will assure the weak and the anxious, there's no need to fear. We assure them that God will say, call upon the Lord and God will save you. That's the mission that God has given to the church to proclaim. Fear not, the Lord will save you. Be strong, we need that message today. Be strong and fear not, right? Drink that in this morning. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. Vengeance takes into account wrongs that have been given and suffered by God's people Recompense pays that wrongdoing. God is saying there's come a time. Vengeance and retribution will be done. Adversaries will get what they get. But God's people, he will what? He, not them, he will come and save you. That's the promise of God. The weak and the fearful have hope. God will establish his rule. There'll be joy and there'll be peace and there'll be righteousness and punishment for the wicked. Verses five and six. Then eyes will be opened. Ears will be let loose, unstopped. A lame will leap. A tongue will open and sing for joy. Then, looking to the final transformation, the final intervention of God, where God establishes salvation in, in full, the removal of every physical obstacle that prohibits the great enjoyment of God will be removed. Isn't that, in part, foreshadowing? foreshadowed by, I should say, the inauguration of King Jesus when he came. In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison and gets his disciples together and says, listen, go find Jesus. We're hearing all this stuff about these miracles and things going on. Ask Jesus, would you? Ask him this question. Are you the one? Are you the one that Isaiah's been talking about? I'm sure that's what he had in mind. Or shall we look for another? And Jesus goes and tells him, listen, go and tell John, go and tell John this. Go tell them what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news. preached to them. Go tell them that. I'm the one. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus in Nazareth. Remember the story? He goes into the synagogue like, ah, the miracle work is back. Hey, let's give him a scroll. Give him a Bible. Imagine that. Let's give God a Bible. And he amused them and opened it, right? He could have quoted it right from heart. What is he open to? Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hands them the scroll, sits down, and everybody's like, Okay. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Pulling no punches. Not like let me explain that to you. I'm him. That's me. Jesus himself cites evidence of his messianic kingdom, his messianic commission through the healing. Through testifying of his coming kingdom. That the king has come and his kingdom is coming. And all the things that have been uh, broken and, and, and sin entered into uh, at creation will be reversed. It has begun with the coming king. Transformation has become and it will be fulfilled in the establishment of his kingdom. As Chris mentioned last week, some interpret these final verses here, uh, eschatological perspective of the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand-year reign of Christ that, that Revelation speaks to several times, as I do believe that, Christ will reign and rule physically for a thousand years. Others believe the Amil approach, uh, that the prophecy is pointing to a glorified state when the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come. But either way, as Chris mentioned last week, both parties believe that this will happen, it will take place, and we are now waiting, hoping, expecting, believing, trusting, and waiting for the promises of God. <laughs> that's our hope. That's, that's our glory. That, that's what we are waiting and verses 6 and 7 is interesting. He brings in this water symbol again of salvation. The land was dry. Now it's drinking. The, the, where the wilderness, um, And now in the wilderness where jackals dwell, water will bring them blessing. God is transforming the desert into a place of springs and ponds and streams. I mean, you know, nothing could be more assuring when you're thirsty or have a dry land that needs something and you're having a drink of water. And we see the transformation. And salvation comes. And notice what Isaiah writes. Isaiah says that the dry land will have become springs. Notice that it's plural. He's making, he's making it, you know, uh, showing the ample uh, uh, amount of water that will be there, springs of water. One day Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem and they had to go around Samaria because Jews didn't go through Samaria because of the hatred toward one another. But Jesus said, you know what? We're going to Samaria. I have an appointment there. You know the story. Samaritan woman's at a well. And Jesus asked her for a drink of water. She startled Jewish men don't ask, especially Jewish men don't ask Samaritan women's, women for a drink. And she's startled by that. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God, I love that. If you knew the gift of God, the gift, I I am the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you to give me a drink, you would have asked him and he, that would be himself, would give you living water. And Jesus goes on to say, everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never, double negative, never ever be thirsty again. The water I give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The transforming power of Jesus will always satisfy the weary and the thirsty soul. The world will never give you what you want to drink, will never give you what you will drink and be satisfied. The human soul will never be satisfied in this world. Only Jesus can The destruction, the transformation, and finally the redemption. And we'll go to communion. Verses 8 through 10. Let me read this to you. And in a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, place of God, the city of God, with singing everlasting joy shall come upon their heads. And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. (laughs) Redemption begins with a journey along the holy way. The way of holiness. Only, only holy people are walking in it. The unclean are not allowed in there. They, they can't enter. The unclean can't enter into the holy place. Fools are not invited. Cannot travel there. They, they walk in foolish ways. and Contrary to the way and the will and the word of God. It's reserved for the people of God. The redeemed people of God. Neither group is qualified morally or ceremonially. When God comes in his glory. Now we know for sure this ain't intrinsic holiness. Only God is. But the holiness that God gives us, God enables us to walk in. And those who joyfully enter Zion to fellowship, look what it says, and praise God are two people. They're the same people, but two two descriptions. Redeemed, verse 9, and ransomed. Underline that in your Bibles. They're actually two different Hebrew words. The word ransomed in verse 9 is used when a when, 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 a, when a person delivers a blood relative from some sort of obligation, whether it's financial or legal or social, it's actually the same word used of, uh, of avenging bloodshed. Picture of, of Zion, a picture of people coming in in, in in relationship, in covenant relationship, blood relationship that God has redeemed. It is a word that was used when God delivered his people from Egypt in Exodus. I'll deliver you from slavery. I will, I will, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm, Exodus 6, 6. That's that word. Now the word ransom in verse 10 comes from the legal practice of making a payment. Making a payment to deliver someone from a debt or from punishment. That word is used when an animal is sacrificed as a substitute for sin. A ransom paid to redeem Someone. Both terms, ransom and and and, and redeem, based on the, on the on the act of someone else, and that's the point. Divine grace. You're in bondage. You're, 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 you, there's nothing you could do, and then you're redeemed, and you're ransomed from your obligation from someone else. This redemption, this ransom, it's not just personal sin. It affects the whole world. God will ransom and redeem and remove the curse of man and the whole world will be ransomed and redeemed and the whole world as God comes in and inaugurates his kingdom and those who will return, look what it says to God will sing and experience everlasting joy (laughs) they will be overtaken with gladness and joyfulness and singing and sorrow will end certainly these 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 words created hope in the in the hearers of the prophet's words that they could trust god only redeemed who are god's own people shall cross over the desert of the holy way and and if you think about it israel is now taken over by assyria the whole land and the byways and the roadways are all taken by foreigners and enemies. And here they are in Judah who's getting ready to be, uh, well, they're not gonna actually take them but at that moment they think they're gonna take up all of Judah. They're right at the doorstep of Jerusalem and he said, no, there'll come a time where there'll be a road and you will walk and there'll be gladness and there'll be joy. Pain, grief, sorrow, fearless, uh, faithfulness uh, will take place. Fearless and fearfulness will be gone. It'll be permanent. It'll be upon the head. This is the biblical hope, family. This is the biblical hope. This is, the foretaste has come in the person of Jesus. With the person of Jesus culminating in our holy ways, walking in his holiness as we walk the path of life. Isaiah is pointing to the servant of Christ. Behold all the beauty, all the glory, all the joy, all the gladness that rests upon the ransom like a crown is really pointing to the suffering death of the King of Kings. Now the band's gonna come on up and we're gonna go to communion. Just give me two more minutes. I want you to, to see that this communion table provides a picture of God's working in our life, a way back to him through getting us through the obstacles of sins and the hindrance of sin as he ransomed us from the captivity of sin. The redemption of Christ's blood. He is our relative. He took on humanity, yet without sin. He identified with us being fully man and fully God. Therefore, he can identify us in our sin. Now, he is sinless, but he can identify us in our flesh, I should say, in our humanity, and yet being God, he could fully forgive us of our sins. He can purchase us on the cross where he died. He himself, the blood of the covenant, sets us free from the legal demands of violating God's law. In fact, uh, Pastor Ricky went to Colossians, and I have it here on my page. He paid the debt. He redeemed us, Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, verse 15, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Family, listen. Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our ransom. Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is the one who became flesh without sin and died and sacrificed and shed his blood so that we could be ransomed and that we could walk along the way shouting and dancing and singing on our way to the holy city. Now, sin no longer separates from God. Now, sadness is gone and rejoicing has replaced it. Gladness will accompany our journey. Let me give you one last word of Jesus. and Something to think about this morning. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For that gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. God is saying to you this morning trust me, follow me they'll be singing the joy will be unbreakable your sorrow and your sighing will be gone it will be replaced by laughter and joy and rejoicing the transformation can take place There, there are two roads two kinds of people which one are you? Chapter 34, destruction. Chapter 35, salvation. Chapter 34, the wrath of God will come upon the world. Chapter 35 is the escape. And Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's the road. No man comes to the Father but by me. One road, verse 34, is the wrath of God. Verse 35 is God's wrath is poured out on Jesus Christ. He is our joy. That's what the table's about. The bread represents His body that was broken for you. The cup represents the blood that was shed. Have you trusted Christ? Today's the day. And maybe you have trusted Christ, but you know what? You have been caught up in fear and all the things that are going on and you need to just say to the Lord today as we sing and celebrate communion together, as we confess our sins and then celebrate the Lord's Supper together just saying, Lord, I, I lay my fears at your feet. I'm gonna trust you and sing and rejoice. And this cup This bread and this cup remind me of all that you are and all that you've done. Christ invites you to come. It's not just a remembrance. It's a time where the Holy Spirit is present and God is drawing us to himself to look at the beauty and the glory of Christ. The band's gonna play. We'll spend some time singing, confessing our sins, but just as the text tells us, we're not gonna stay there. We're gonna rejoice. We're gonna rejoice in the work of salvation. So the song... Band's going to play. If you're a believer, welcome to the table. If you're not a believer, just sing and stay at your seat. This is for the family of God. Maybe today's the first day that you say, you know what? I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to believe that I'm a sinner. I'm going to believe he died for me, and I'm going to take communion. If today's your first day, welcome. Band's going to play. You're going to grab the cup, grab the bread, grab the cup, sit down, hold on to the elements, and then after this next song, we'll partake together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we know that you love us and warn us in love. That you care enough for us to let us know what it is that's going to take place. That's how much you love us. And you love us so much that you are willing to come in the, in the person of Jesus Christ and there die in our place for our sin. You took what we deserve upon yourself so that we can have life. You were nailed to the cross so that we can have life. You, Lord Jesus... we're separated from the Father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we can be brought in? So Lord, we pray as the band plays, as we sing, as we contemplate, as we pray, as we look to you, help us, Lord, to confess our sins, but also help us to celebrate the work of salvation, the gospel, as we celebrate and rejoice in all that you have done. You are our ransom, you are our redeemer, you are our deliverer, and Lord, we will sing for the glory of God. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.